A cultural touchstone, the movie Forrest Gump tells the story of an everyman with a front seat to history. Mom always said there's an awful lot you could tell about a person by their shoes. Where they go, where they've been. I've worn lots of shoes. I bet if I think about it real hard, I could remember my first pair of shoes. Mama said they'd take me anywhere. Decades before Forrest Gump witnessed the Vietnam War, a real everyman named Anton Kerpe was witnessing World War I. And he drew the events in World War I frame by frame. He's trying to make sense of what's going on through his artistic abilities. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, watching history unfold in real life at the movies and later in today's episode on stage. Dino Armas's plays uh, have to do with issues that the world has gone through and continues to go through, and they definitely resonate with all the issues of migration uh, in the United States. But first, Documentary filmmaker Nathine Deench knew she'd struck gold when she came across Antoine Carpe's elaborate journals, cartoons, recordings, and collections, revealing what it was like in the last days of the Ottoman Empire. A professor at James Madison University, she's working on a film called The Memoirs of Antoine Carpe. Nathine, tell me about Antoine Carpe, the Turkish man who's the subject of your documentary. Antoine Kirpe uh, was born in 1897 uh, to Hungarian and French parents. So when World War I broke out, he took part in the war, but he enlisted in Istanbul in the Austria-Hungarian army. He was based in Istanbul and then he was sent to Palestine. But afterwards, he uh, lived a very uh, eventful life in Turkey. What's important about Antoine Kirpe is that he kept um, archives and memoirs, and it's vast. And in these memoirs, we find photographs, drawings, sketches, home videos, sound recordings, army memorabilia, family letters, postcards, anything you can think of, he kept it in his memoirs to make sure that what he lived through is um, documented. And was Antoine Kerpe also a notable soldier? Was your interest in him in part because he had done something sort of spectacular? Quite the contrary. He was nobody. He was just a foot soldier, very young foot soldier, trying to figure out what's happening in the world. And you can see in his drawings, uh, which he did during the war and afterwards, that he is fascinated with all the events around him. And he drew the events in World War I, frame by frame. He's trying to make sense of what's going on through his artistic abilities. How did Antoine come to be caught up in the war? When did he realize he'd have to join the army? So when World War I breaks out, he is in Istanbul. And one day when he is at the school, a police comes and tells them that The school is closed, the war has started, and all of their teachers are sent back to France because now Ottoman Empire is in war against France. 
And Antoine says that, well, we were happy to do that because we wanted to read the newspapers on, and learn about the war. We didn't care about algebra. <laughs> and a couple of years later, he enlists to the Austro-Hungarian army. It's interesting because in the trailer for your documentary, he describes what an international collection of young men sign up for the army. I'll, I'll read that uh, quote if you don't mind. Uh, when he's talking about Christmas, when he's talking about celebrating Christmas in the Austro-Hungarian army, he says, we were uh, Austrians, Hungarians, Czechs, Croats, Poles, and Italians. In other words, all of the people who formed the veritable United States of Central Europe that we would like to reconstitute today in vain. So he is uh, aware that uh, he is living in this cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic society and it's crumbling and he is uh, yearning for that in his memoirs. As you say, he was very artistic and wrote these remarkable cartoons, tons of them. He was also very musical. You say his family brought a piano back after they visited Paris in 1889 when the Eiffel Tower was built. Do you have any pieces you could play for us, recordings from his collection of him singing or playing? Certainly. Here's a um, little piece uh, played by Antoine, and he's also singing here. <laughs> As I go through his recordings, um, I also find out that how talented he is, as well as his wife. Uh, usually they sing together, but you hear accordion, guitar, piano, sometimes the whole family is singing together. And it's a variety of languages and musical styles. So it also says a lot about the cosmopolitan nature of this family. It must be thrilling to you to be able to tell the story of this cataclysmic moment in world history through the very observant, talented eyes of this young man. When I talk to people about political events or history, sometimes I sense that they are looking through a nationalistic perspective. And I would like to say through my films that there are other perspectives, like uh, looking at uh, Antoine's memoirs. He, was an, he had French and Hungarian background. He fought in the Austria-Hungarian army in Ottoman Empire, and he was sent to Palestine. And all around him, there was this cosmopolitan world. So his memoirs, what he wrote, help us to look at history from a different perspective changing our, um, you know, point of view. I think he was only 18 when his unit was deployed to Palestine. What did he witness there? He saw, and he was one of them, the whole retreat. People are on horses, uh, trucks, whatever they can find, on trains. And he says that up until 1918, they were not afraid of aeroplanes because they were not really effective. But in 1918, when they are retreating, he had this huge fear against the aeroplanes because that's when 
uh, the planes become effective in the war. The British were bombing the retreat. Yes, the British were bombing the retreat, and he says that he would, as soon as he hears the planes, he would leave the truck and run and uh, just lay on the sand. So if the truck would blow up, he would be safe. I'm fascinated that his father at some point pulls his son aside and says the Ottoman Empire is doomed. Uh, his father says that uh, the Ottoman Empire as well as the Austro-Hungarian empires will be doomed and the empires will collapse as a house of cards. That's what he says. And Antoine says that at that time I thought that my father was rumbling like any other young person. And then he says the um, future, the history proved my father right. So what did he notice during the war? Were his fellow soldiers from different ethnic backgrounds backstabbing each other or treating each other well? During the war, when Antoine is in the army, he says he never witnessed uh, any nationalistic fight among the soldiers. That's what he says. But right after the war, right after the war is lost in the Austro-Hungarian army, at the barracks, he says we sensed the nationalistic feeling among the soldiers soldiers right away. Uh, that's what he says. But I should add that Antoine mentions that uh, in the Austro-Hungarian army, some of the soldiers were not nice against the Jewish soldiers. For example, when he is in the military uh, hospital in Damascus, he says that soldiers did pranks against this Jewish soldier named Aaron. And uh, they didn't want him to see the uh, Sunday Mass. They forced him to leave his bed and go somewhere else during the Mass. And Antoine claims that he didn't take part in this prank or um, jokes. What's important about this anecdote is that it foreshadows what's going to happen soon in about 20 years' time and uh, what's going to happen during World War II. You discovered that he saved a lot of things from the war. He collected memorabilia. What are the pieces that have sort of delighted you? So one of the army memorabilia uh, that we find in Antoine's memoirs is a badge, and it says Gibraltar on it. He says that in Palestine, he saw uh, an English POW captured by the Austro-Hungarians, and he goes to him and asks for that badge, gets the badge and gives him 10 oranges. And he says, right now it doesn't look like much, but at the time in the Palestine desert, five oranges doesn't sound like much, but it was so important, so good to have five oranges in the Palestine desert. He was constantly drawing cartoons of what he saw as a soldier in the army. What were some of the drawings that were particularly revealing to you? Again, he doesn't um, mince his words. For example, he's that, he says that the soldiers looked really funny because they had small heads, big boots, um, really uh, crappy bayonets, and that's how he draws them. So he doesn't uh, try to glorify the army. If he sees that the army looks funny, he draws it that way. Um, one of the captains in the Austro-Hungarian army taught um, Turkish soldiers how to uh, drive trucks. 
and then uh, Antoine saw that and drew a caricature about it. So there's this uh, Austro-Hungarian uh, captain and he has a whip in his hands teaching uh, foot soldiers how to use a truck. Uh, so it's important because it's kind of funny, but it's also a um, historical event that Austro-Hungarian soldiers and German soldiers coming to the Ottoman Empire and teaching Turkish soldiers how to use the army equipment. That's an historical event. And it's not a dry, you know, historical textbook, but a cartoon telling the same story. That's why it's important. At the start of his young life, Constantinople is such a thriving cosmopolitan area with people from all nationalities living side by side. But after the war, that all changes. And people who are from the various nations have to go back to their countries. And you see the rise in nationalism. Um, you know, all of, the, all of his comrades and friends tried to stay in the Ottoman Empire and later in Turkey for a while. But most of them leave after a while because of the policy of the Ottoman Empire, of Turkey, and because of what, what was happening in Europe at the time. But Antoine wants to stay. Um, so uh, in Istanbul, under occupation, he cannot find any work. So he goes to the Black Sea region uh, and works at the mines for seven years, I believe, or eight years. He comes back and works all around Anatolia until late 50s, uh, I believe. And that's very unusual. Mostly people uh, left uh, Turkey at that time. Uh, he, but he stays and he uh, retires from the Ottoman bank uh, working in Anatolia. So that's also what's unique about Antoine. When will we be able to watch your completed documentary? Our plan is to finish the documentary early 2021. The uh, French TV channel Histoire already purchased the film, so it's very likely that uh, it will be aired at different European TV channels, and our it's also our intention to screen it in the US somewhere. <laughs> du petit tombe, lui dit un matin, tu es votre courbe, une mi-chapin, à la ville tu peux faire un bon mais pour labourer la terre, très bien trop petit mon ami, très bien trop petit. Nathan Deench is a professor at James Madison University. To learn more about our forthcoming documentary about Antoine Kerpe, go to AntoineKerpe.com. That's AntoineKerpe.com. Coming up next, Latin American history unfolding at the theater. the 1970s and 80s, a military dictatorship in Uruguay caused many natives to flee, migrating around the world. 
The stories of those migrations and their returns are told by Uruguayan playwright Dino Armas. Very prolific and well-known in his country, he's becoming better known in the United States, thanks in some part to Gabriella Toledi. Gabriella is a professor at Tidewater Community College and an adjunct instructor at Old Dominion University. She's also the author of a new book, On the Scene with Migration and Dictatorship, an interdisciplinary approach to the work of Uruguayan playwright Dino Armas. Gabriela, Dino Armas is incredibly prolific with his works, and they've been staged around the world, but he is less well-known in the English-speaking world. Tell us about him. Yes, yes. Dino Armas is a magnificent and a multifaceted man. Uh, he's a playwright, of course, as you know, but he has also had so many other roles in his life. He's been a theater director, a stage designer, an actor, a television scriptwriter, and very importantly, he was a school teacher and a principal. So for him, for him, it's so important that his plays are didactic, that he's actually teaching through his plays. So this is very, very important to him. Tell me a little bit about Uruguay and dictatorships there in order to better understand the works of Dino Armas. Yeah, well, Uruguay is, of course, a very small country in South America, located between Argentina and Brazil. And during the uh, 1970s and 80s, there were several dictatorships, military dictatorships. Uh, there was a coup, the military um, uh, took over. And, uh, and during all those years, uh, we didn't have, of course, the rights uh, to vote. Uh, the people were imprisoned for their political views. Uh, many people had to flee the country and others were actually captured and tortured. So, so those were very bleak, very dark uh, times uh, for our country. Uh, Dino Armas actually thought about leaving the country as well. He thought about leaving, but he stayed. Um, so, so in his plays, he deals with these topics of those who left and also of those who stayed. Your book talks about two migrations. If one was people leaving Uruguay during the dictatorship, what was the other one? So the first migration happened mainly as a result of uh, trying to escape the horrors of war and poverty uh, during the 19th century. But the last migration, the other migration, the other way around from Uruguay to uh, Europe, uh, Australia, the United States, happened as a result of these political issues that I was talking about during the military dictatorship from 1973 to 1985. Let's look at the issue of migration from Uruguay through Dino Armas's play called Just Yesterday. Tell mm -hmm. me about Just mm -hmm. Yesterday, what the storyline is. Just Yesterday is a wonderful play that deals indeed with, uh, with this migration of this, uh, actually with the exile of this character called Eduardo. Eduardo, during the time period of the military dictatorship, he was very involved politically and he uh, was scared of staying in the country because he might be captured and tortured. So he decided to leave uh, Uruguay and he went to Spain. 
Um, he was in Spain during 10 years. Uh, during those 10 years, uh, he tried to adapt the best he could. And uh, finally, he comes back to Uruguay uh, when we are returning to democracy. Uh, but then he feels that he doesn't fit in Uruguay anymore, and he doesn't fit in Spain either, right? So he feels that he's a foreigner in both places. And something very interesting and very poignant that he says is, I have lost my story. They stole it from me. They erased it. When he left Uruguay, he left his story there, and he tried to start a new story in Spain. It's indeed very, very poignant and very sad because uh, once he goes back to Uruguay, he realizes that uh, he doesn't fit there, but he doesn't fit in Spain either. He says, I am a foreigner here, and I'm a foreigner there. I have lost my history. They stole it from me. They erased it 10 years ago. That's what I am now, what they made me become, an old guy, too old already, who does not know where he's going or who he is. When he comes back, his family and friends accuse him of having left them when they had to struggle the most. That's exactly right. They blame him. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is very hard because although he was writing letters when he was in Spain and he was keeping in touch with the family, um, still they blame him. They blame him that, for example, his father died and he was not there. People were sick and he was not there. All these different tragedies happened and he was not there. So everyone is excited, excited, happy that he comes back. But then all the family dynamics stands starts to unravel, and uh, they have all these arguments in which they all blame each other. You have also immigrated from Uruguay. Do you see yourself in Eduardo? I see myself in Eduardo. I see myself in Eduardo so very much. Uh, Although I left under very different circumstances, uh, I left as a student who wanted to come to the States to uh, study for a master's, for a PhD, which I did. I didn't leave because of political reasons, but still I identify with Eduardo. I identify with that feeling of not fitting here and not fitting there. And, uh, And I think I lived that every single day of my life. Because when I go back to Uruguay, that I go once a year, sometimes twice a year, there are certain things about Uruguay that now surprise me. But then there are still things here that I am not completely uh, used to. And I have been in the States for over 30 years. For example, one thing that is still, um, how can I put it? My accent. I, I still have an accent and that's obvious. So sometimes when I go to a store, for example, and someone asks me, oh, what a pretty accent. Where are you from? Yes, it's nice. I enjoy people asking. I enjoy people noticing. But also it is a reminder that I am not from here, uh, that I don't totally fit. And what are the moments where Uruguay feels like a strange country to you, though you were raised there? 
Mm. One of them has to do with personal space. Uh, here, I'm used to the fact that, for example, I go anywhere I go, I go to the grocery store, anywhere I go, people just say, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, when they are like really, you know, several several feet away and, uh, and everyone is so polite that way. Not that we are not polite, but but the thing is that in Uruguay, the whole idea, the whole, the whole feel, the whole way in which we deal with personal space is very different and uh, and people get much closer to you and you might be in a grocery store and someone just elbows you and continues walking and and that is <laughs> and that is but that's normal and you know and then and they still smile at you as they are elbowing you and continue walking and so forth that is a, a little something when Dino Armas was writing about migration and alienation from you know the motherland and this sort of thing it was a while back how do you mm -hmm. think those same plays have particular resonance now as America is embroiled in, you know, who belongs, who goes, what it means to immigrate? Dino Armas's plays are really timeless. They really uh, are plays that uh, have to do with issues that uh, the world has gone through and continues to go through, and uh, and and they definitely re resonate so much, especially now with all the issues of migration uh, in the United States. For example, I was teaching a class using my book, and uh, and one of my students who uh, she's biracial for her, uh, she identified so much with Eduardo because being biracial, she feels like Eduardo, that she doesn't totally belong to her uh, white family or to her uh, black family, that she's always in between. And she says that reading Dino's plays was therapeutic for her. Uh, and that is where the genius of Dino Armas is, in being able to reach people in so many different ways. Before I let you go, I have to ask you about your dog, Churro. <laughs> You're working on a book called Churro the Dune Dog. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Churro the Dune Dog. And we want to add, um, my husband wants to add, and I think it's a good idea, memoirs of an international rescue. Uh, because, <laughs> because, let me tell you, we were going to a beach with my cousin. Uh, we were walking through some dunes. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, out of some shrubbery, um, we hear some noises. And I get really nervous. And I say, what's that? What's that? And my husband, who is very much about kidding, he says, oh, that's probably just a snake. And of course, I, <laughs> I screamed very, very loudly. And suddenly, out of the shrubbery comes this little thing, two months old, uh, yellow lab uh, puppy. And uh, the day before, my husband had, had um, learned, actually, the word cachorro, which means puppy in Spanish. So immediately, my husband used the word he had just um, <laughs> learned cachorro and he said it's a cachorro and I said that's right and that's why the name the name chorro came from from the word cachorro we were leaving the next day and uh, and we decided to adopt uh, the puppy and bring it to the United States and well here he is with a with a family you know my book is gonna have to do with adoption with traveling with all kinds of issues uh, we, we also with integration with diversity diversity for kids to understand some of these issues. Yeah, and it's interesting how in a different way this also has to do with migration. 
Gabriella Toledi is a professor at Tidewater Community College and an adjunct instructor at Old Dominion University. Her new book is called On the Scene with Migration and Dictatorship, an interdisciplinary approach to the work of Uruguayan playwright Dino Armas. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. In early June, the Trump administration imposed new travel restrictions on Cuba, once again closing the island off from American travelers. But for a brief few years, Americans and Cubans saw an opportunity for a flourishing cultural exchange. I spoke with Anne-Marie Stock during that window of optimism She's an expert in Cuban film and has traveled to the island more than 60 times. Anne-Marie Stock is also a professor of Hispanic Studies and Film and Media Studies at William & Mary. This is an encore presentation of that conversation. And of course, your expertise and special interest has been Cuban film. What do you think this period of expanded relations between our countries will mean for filmmakers? I think there are all kinds of implications. I think Cuban filmmakers are really excited and enthusiastic about the possibilities. So they've been engaging in co-productions and in collaborative projects with people in other countries, but they now have this whole new terrain. They have all of these possibilities in the U.S. Cuba has a really highly trained group of filmmakers, and I mean that broadly to include actors, actresses, producers, designers. And so this will be just an extraordinary opportunity for the film world in the U.S. Have there been any Cuban films that Americans have seen relatively recently that we'd recognize? You know, I think the one um, that comes to mind most recently is a zombie movie, believe it or not, called uh, Juan of the Dead. Just hilarious, even if you're not a genre film fan or a zombie film fan. I actually am not, but I love (laughs) this film, so I would highly recommend that. Perhaps the best-known Cuban film of all time is Memories of Underdevelopment, dating back to the 60s. And that film routinely makes it on the list of the world's 100 best films of all times. Wasn't it around 1959 that Fidel Castro issued an edict creating the film industry in Cuba and then saying these are all going to be revolutionary message films. Well, he definitely created that film institute, and it was through this National Film Institute that Cuba's revolutionary culture would be uh, disseminated around the world, and also through this mode that Cubans would be educated. That said, there was from the very beginning a sense that film would have to continue to be art. And so the filmmakers, some of them trained in Italy, others of them who learned by doing, learned on the fly and and kind of by apprenticing to some of the master filmmakers, they really were intrigued by artistic experimentation. They were, you know, not at all content to just kind of 
tell the news of the day in documentary form, they very much wanted to explore what it meant to create a unique film language that would be appropriate for this new growing revolutionary culture. And they were not censored by the government? For the most part, they were not censored. In fact, people often look at these films and say, I had no idea something like that could be made in Cuba. That's not to say at times some filmmakers didn't take too much leeway and, you know, their projects were either halted or perhaps not distributed. There was a big sea change in Cuban filmmaking when the Soviet Union collapsed. That was a marked period in before and after in terms of filmmaking, in part because the Soviet Union stopped underwriting Cuba. You're absolutely right. And after the breakup of the Soviet Union, Cuba went into this free-fall economic crisis where there were shortages of everything. Basic supplies like food, but also light bulbs and paper and pens. And so the world of filmmaking suffered dramatically because, you know, there were frequent power outages. So it was this time of crisis, but also of a move to reimagine how films were going to be made in moving forward. And it actually turned out to be a really fertile time to think about new ways of telling stories on film, when a whole new generation of filmmakers came to the fore. So suddenly, you know, the world over, there were new technologies developing that permitted an individual with a handheld camera and a personal computer to make a film. And this was really important in Cuba because suddenly now if you had a bicycle, as was the case with Esteban Insausti, he grabbed his bicycle, a handheld camera, he pedaled around Havana filming interviews, and it's those interviews that made up his short experimental piece called Existen, They Exist. How has the film viewing experience in Cuba changed recently for you? You know, it's changed dramatically. Um, As in many parts of the world, film once was kind of sacred in a in a cinema space, and that's where one went to see films. And of course, that's been changing in Cuba as it's been changing elsewhere. And flash drives made a world of difference, So, or external hard drives, where films could be copied and shared. And, you know, several people have told me that it's not surprising for uh, Hollywood, a new Hollywood film to be seen widely in Cuba, even before it premieres in the U.S., that it makes its way to Cuba with the time code still on. And Cubans, you know, are completely up to speed on all of this culture. So when someone says, oh, do you think Cubans would have seen U.S. films? Oh, my goodness. They're... Um, Viewing patterns are like ours. They will have seen anything we've seen and probably a lot more because they're really entrepreneurial. They're also really interested in world films. So I think in the U.S. we tend to focus a bit more on Hollywood. It's what we know. It's um, how we've grown up. Cubans enjoy Hollywood films for sure contemporary and classic but they also have this really robust diet of film from around the world. 
and when they're not viewing films privately on computers and iPhones and such, what is the theater-going experience like? You know, the theaters still draw great crowds. Havana has these this series of really impressive um, art house cinemas. They're very large, and, you know, it's, it's an event. So young people meet their dates outside the cinema, and there's food, there's pizza and popcorn and ice cream, and it's a, it's a way to hang out. And certainly going in those cinemas, you see, you know, everyone from babies to senior citizens, um, very vibrant spaces. One filmmaker, Enrique Colina, joked to me that part of why his film was such a box office hit was that it was it premiered in summer and the theater was air conditioned. Yeah. So, in <laughs> fact, the um, cinemas are pretty appealing places on a hot summer afternoon. But I think they're important for other reasons. I think Cubans are just phenomenal film fans, and I think they still really enjoy that collective experience of going to the movies. During the annual film festival each December held in Havana, it's remarkable to see the number of Cubans lined up to get into the cinema. Some of them will line up for the first screening, which starts at 10, and if they don't make it in, if the cinema fills before it's their turn, they'll stick around in line and wait to get in to the 12.30 screening. I'm so eager to ask you, what are Cubans like? You've been there so often and over so many years. You have much better sense for this than the rest of us. They're very generous and open. They're very welcoming. I remember when I went as a graduate student for the first time, I expected some hostility. And on the contrary, they were so welcoming. I'm often struck, too, by the value of solidarity. This is something Cubans feel deeply. And having one's well-being based on the well-being of those around. And so a filmmaker friend, Fernando Perez, told me this anecdote that I think really underscores this value of solidarity. He was talking about making a film during this economic crisis in the special period in the 90s. And he said he was really struck that um, one morning the snack came. There were all of these children gathered to be extras in the film. So a little piece of bread and, you know, something to drink. And he said, despite the fact that many of these children had come without having had breakfast, they were hungry. By now it was mid-morning. He said no child bit into that piece of bread until they were sure there was enough to go around that even young people, even little four- and five-year-olds, kind of see themselves as part of a larger group. And I've seen that value expressed on so many occasions in so many different ways. And I think that value of solidarity is something I've learned about and something that I try to model to the extent possible in my own world. Anne-Marie Stock is a professor of Hispanic Studies and Film and Media Studies at William & Mary. Coming up next, understanding Mexican history through its theater. 
In Mexico, theater is being used to address the shadows in its history, as well as present-day culture. Jacqueline Bixler, a professor of Spanish at Virginia Tech, specializes in Latin American theater. Bixler was named Outstanding Faculty of 2016 by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Jackie, you were just in Mexico to keep abreast of the theater scene. Is theater a bigger deal there than it is in the U.S.? Uh, yes, I think it is, um, especially in Mexico City. Mexico City is enormous. It's one of the biggest cities in the world, and theater is very affordable. I mean, some of the plays cost maybe $3 to get in and see. Oh, gosh. Can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, it's not New York City. And no. some of the plays are very professional, very well done. You first heard Spanish as a high school student. You grew up where, in Ohio? Yes, in Cleveland. What was it about the language that you loved? Um, I'm not sure I really loved it at the time. I had a high school teacher that was wonderful, and that really kind of turned it around for me. And I had these Mexican professors that were just absolutely wonderful and really turned me on to it. You also studied there? Yes. After my sophomore year, I spent a summer in Jalapa, Mexico, and absolutely fell in love with the place and go back there almost every year. How is Mexican theater different just as a genre than U.S. theater, would you say? I think that it's a little less experimental. When I think of American theater, I think of, well, I think of Broadway, of course, which is its own animal. But outside of Broadway and big spectacles, I think that American theater and Canadian theater tend to be more uh, experimental. I also think that they tend to be more universal in the sense that they can be adapted to other languages and other places. Mexican theater, on the other hand, I don't think travels as well. I think it's much more local and much more concerned with their national reality. History in Mexico is incredibly important, and it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere, everywhere. Even the most uneducated Mexicans know a lot more about their national history than we do, and they're very proud of it. The only problem is that there's two kinds of history in Mexico. There's what we call official history and unofficial history. Official history is what the government supports and publishes. And unofficial history is the history that you have to often go out and talk to people in small towns about, meaning that's the history that doesn't get published. What theater does a lot of times is go back and revisit very famous events, very famous personages, and what might they really have been like. Sometimes they go and they uncover all new documents and things that have been buried for years, and they bring out another whole side of the character. And so the theater is a way of reopening the door on history. So is a lot of Mexican theater sort of political theater? Yes. But when I say political, it's not that kind of political theater where they're hitting you over the head with some ideology. It's much more subtle. You have to keep in mind that the same political party in Mexico was in power for 72 years, from 1928 until 2000. During those years, nothing was able to be changed. And now there's been this whole revisionist view of history. You mean by the playwrights? Not just by the playwrights, but also by Mexican intellectuals. I mean, here's a really simple concept. Uh, Hayden White, who's a theorist, says that history is like a table. And when you look at a table, we only see the table top, right? Nonetheless, we're always conscious that there's an underneath part. There's an underside to the table, but we never go looking to see what's there. And that's kind of what they've been doing in Mexico. 
just in the last century, a lot of things have been written in Mexico um, from the Aztecs' point of view or from the indigenous people's point of view. The other events are more recent. Um, Of course, you have the revolution of 1910. Not a lot of plays have been written about that. That's a very... Uh, that's a very, very complicated period in Mexican history because it started in 1910, but nobody ever knows when it really ended. Some people think it never did end. Some people think it never really got off the ground. So, and it was bloody. Oh yeah, it was a it was a civil it was civil war. Yeah, and it went on for at least 10 years, but some people say it went on for a lot longer and kind of culminated in 1968, which most people know is the year that the Olympics took place in Mexico City, first time ever to take place in Mexico. That was the massacre. Right. That was the massacre that took place on October 2nd, 1968 in the Plaza de Tlatelolco, also known as the Plaza of the Three Cultures. And people consider that the turning point or the watershed in Mexican history because it's the point at which people weren't going to let the government cover things up anymore. Um, The government reported, finally admitted that maybe 34 people had been killed. And hundreds of others were shot. Uh, Yes, yes, hundreds of others and uh, more hundreds of others simply disappeared, never to be seen again. This is kind of interesting, actually. Uh, The first time I went to Mexico was 73. And we went and visited that plaza with Mexicans and no one ever mentioned it. No one ever said anything about it. And when I finally heard about it, I thought, how could something like this that involved the death of hundreds of people simply have been swept under the carpet? No official inquiry was ever conducted. No, none of the officials believed to have ordered the massacre were ever brought to trial. And it just astounded me. I I think that's part of the reason I've always found it so fascinating. Was the Mexico City Massacre of 1968 fuel for playwrights? Uh, Yes, very much so. In 1993, yes, on the 20th, 25th anniversary of the massacre, a whole collection of plays came out, plays about 1968. Some of them had been written fairly soon after the massacre, but of course they had not been staged, and even if they tried to be staged, they were censored. And then most recently, in 2008, on the 40th anniversary, um, I met a playwright who had just written a play called Olympia. 68, I'll just say it in English. And this was the first play, to my knowledge, in which the two things going on that summer were merged together, meaning the preparations for the Olympics and the lead-up to the massacre. And he, what he does is he presents everything that happened that summer as sports. So he presents the sporting events in the Olympics, but they take they become extremely full of black humor because, you know, the like the judge or the, what is it, the guy that fires the pistol. He says, one, two, three, go. And, of course, the runner is shot dead as soon as he takes off. So it's all merged together. And But, again, I don't think the government really liked it very much because they it, it played during that commemorative event, and then it was never staged again. Huh. Yeah. So is there much censorship of plays in Mexico by the government? Uh, censorship is not legal, but there are ways to make things difficult. And one thing that they will do is they will not provide theater space and they will not provide funding. One thing that's different about Mexican theater is that um, a lot of the playwrights and 
theater companies and directors actually are funded by the government. So there's a lot of competition for this funding. But that also kind of implies that you're going to behave. And so when you go beyond or you start poking at what's considered sacred, like the Mexican army or the president or, you know, God forbid, the Virgin of Guadalupe, well, then you aren't going to get a theater space. Is there more humor in Mexican plays typically than American audiences are used to? I believe so. Like a lot of the plays in Mexico have to do with the violence that is the result of all the drug trafficking. I mean, it's hard to believe that people can write funny plays about drug violence, but sometimes there is humor. It's a very black, black, black form of humor. But I find that audience respond better to that than if they go to see a play where there's no laughter and it's all about someone being either kidnapped and killed or about drug violence that's going to lead to some horrible scene at the end. Are playwrights intimidated by the drug lords? (laughs) That's a funny question, actually. Um, More than intimidated, sometimes they're approached by the drug lords who want plays written about them. I work with a playwright named Sabina Berman, and sometimes, I guess the the drug guys heard about it, and they actually called a meeting with her and told her that they wanted her to write a play about them. And she said, no. (laughs) So she was very freaked out, though. Like, she had extra security at her apartment um, in Mexico City. She She was pretty scared about it. In the 90s, she wrote one she's updated many times since then, The Bird, the Fat Man, and the Narco. (laughs) Yes, and that is actually the play that most recently was turned into this play called uh, The Narco Does Business with God. And it was such a huge hit. Of course, the title in and of itself is going to be a draw because everybody wants to know how the narco is doing business with God. But basically, it was about the whole moral state of Mexico right now and how difficult it is to distinguish the good from the bad or the narco from the politician. I mean, people honestly don't know anymore when somebody moves into the neighborhood, is this a good guy or is this a bad guy? How awful. It is awful, and that's why there's so much insecurity in Mexico right now. Did her notion in the play of good and evil change over all that time? Did she become sort of inured to the idea that there really are even redeeming qualities among us? That's a, that is a good question, because honestly, I would say that one of the things that Sabina does really well is that she doesn't take a side. She's pretty irreverent in terms of nobody is perfect. There is no hero in her plays. been an encore presentation of my conversation with Jacqueline Bixler. Jacqueline Bixler teaches Spanish at Virginia Tech and was named Outstanding Faculty by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzyk, and Cass Adair. 
Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Special thanks this week to Todd Washburn at WHRO. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.